can you create a system which isn't controlled by a corporation that gives you the benefits of that system? The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're at episode 402. I'm Paul Spain. G'day, I'm uh, Aaron McDonald. I'm the founder and CEO of Centrality. G'day, Jerome Forey, Group GM, Centrality. Well, great to uh, great to be with you both. Now, we're recording from your place rather than um, mine this week. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here at Crypto Hill. Um, thanks for accommodating my broken leg. A little bit of a skiing accident uh, about a week and a half ago down in... Uh, the beautiful Queenstown ski area. So um, good to have you down here and and the opportunity to speak um, with you and the rest of the the audience around what's going on in tech this week. Yeah, well, lots of uh, lots of things going on uh, as as always. Uh, and look, I'm looking forward to diving in and uh, and chatting a bit about uh, centrality during the show. But lots of uh, lots of interesting uh, topics over the last few days that I wanted to chat about. Um, first up was this warning that came through uh, um, from the FBI. I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but uh, it, it became uh, public in the media over the last few days that uh, they put out a warning to uh, to banks around the world about potential sort of ATM heists and mm. uh, basically people ripping off uh, uh, lots of their money from money machines. And then uh, soon after hearing uh, hearing about that, we heard about uh, Cosmos uh, Bank in India uh, that had actually been hit, and um, you know, somewhere north of uh, twenty million dollars uh, that has kind of um, just disappeared from uh, uh, from machines all over the place. Um, so yeah, this is quite an interesting one. You'd, you'd have to imagine to take out that sort of amount of money, uh, you know, you've got to. Um, be very well uh, organised because yep. that's a lot of money to pull out of an ATM. You would need a lot of a lot of ATMs, and there have been a few different figures that have been thrown around. I think uh, twenty five uh, countries is the suggestion uh, at the moment mm. where this happened. And then you know, I guess in in most of those locations, there must have been a you know a bunch of uh, ATMs that were uh, were hit. So yeah, really really interesting to see these two uh, you know bits that were obviously tied quite closely together. And you know, in this case, the um, uh, the bank in India, uh, Cosmos, obviously weren't able to uh, uh, take advantage of of the warnings uh, from FBI, who uh, must have uh, heard some some bits and pieces of chatter and uh, knew this thing was was about to hit. Yeah, I think. I mean, it just goes to show that um, with a big enough prize out there, um, there are very sophisticated operations. And there's been a few kind of questions about what type of organisation it was. Was it a you know, criminal organisation was it perhaps state sponsored? Maybe um, that's but, pretty common with these things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but no doubt um, it was very sophisticated and highly organised. And to pull off something that large in that many countries with you know what would have been a decent number of people without it breaking out and becoming um, common knowledge beforehand um, would have been a pretty amazing feat, I think. Yeah, and look, you know, if we if we were in a in a world where this was uh, you know happening with with a cryptocurrency, mm. you know, Bitcoin, there there becomes a a level of being able to monitor some of you know some mm. of what's going on. Um, but I I wonder whether there needs to be, and and maybe maybe there is uh, some better technology in terms of 
with ATMs and mm. and whatnot, whether they should be tracking because every note's got a serial number, right? Yeah. So you know, in theory, if their technology was was a little bit better than it is, or maybe it, or maybe it has this already, <laughs> they 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 should know every note that went out of these machines and be able to track them. And then you know, if our uh, payment <laughs> terminals and so on were uh, you know wherever the cash was sort of being uh, arriving at. Uh, was looking at this stuff, then you know you'd be able to track track back some um, some results, right? Yeah, I think it highlights a few things actually. So, I mean, on the on the one hand, you've got an increasingly digital world where um, digital payments are facilitating a lot of processes. Um, on the other hand, you've got um, some fairly old technology that runs the majority of the financial infrastructure in the world. Um, Jerome, you've worked in the payments industry for a long time. Maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of background from your from your experience about what we're dealing with here underneath all the um the hype of innovation in in the traditional payments world and then we could talk a little bit about how programmable money might be able to solve some of these problems yeah thanks Uh, there's a lot of rhetoric particularly in new zealand around payments innovation and we're very proud of our you know um history around adoption in particular which you know to a a degree is, is the gold standard but the reality is, in 1978, Bank of America created this, this system. It was called Base One. It stands for Bank of America System Experiment. Yeah. <laughs> this, this actual technology, and it is beautiful technology, and the, the founder, D. Hock, is one of my all-time mentors, and not to take anything away from it, but this fundament, it's an API for banks to be able to issue and acquire uh, visa transactions. Still processes over ninety percent of the transactions in New Zealand today. So we've got a forty-year-old API. We've still got terminals. We've still got networks. We've still got switches. Um, we've got proprietary aggregators of transactions that sit on top of the telco networks themselves to reduce the risk of a DDoS on those networks. Um, you've still got cards. Uh, with the innovation that's occurring currently, um, people don't need or want. That and those parties that provide all of that technology tend to clip the ticket on the way through. You know, in, in New Zealand, that equates to $461 million a year uh, in fees, which 50% of that is covered by SMEs in, in New Zealand. Um, and I think, furthermore, they've released a new standard which will allow non-cryptographic devices to be able to process those card transactions. So it's a new standard called Pin on Glass. Mm. Uh, which means you don't have an FPOS terminal fundamentally, a pin entry device. And currently it's the merchant that takes the risk on that transaction. Right. Um, they try and move that onto the cardholder. So funnily enough, uh, signature transactions have less risk for the cardholder than a pin transaction. If you if your pin is compromised, you're liable. If the signature was replicated, the person accepting it's liable. So... Yeah, there's a whole lot of things. I'm going to see more innovation payments in the next five years than we've seen in the last 50, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, and I think the key the key thing is that you've got increasingly sophisticated ad- adversaries that can pull off attacks like this. You may, maybe the underlying infrastructure needs to evolve a little bit as well. Yeah, look, I you know I don't think this stuff is is uh, super easy to solve, but I'm no. I'm sure you're probably a little bit more on the side of the fence <laughs> that. Uh, that we we uh, we have the solutions and the capabilities to solve these things. Um, now, also on on the sort of the, the hacking front, um, teenager in uh, Melbourne that uh, managed to compromise Apple's 
network in some uh, form, and this has come out in the media because uh, um, he has uh, he's he's been in court. And um, look, the the situation is is interesting from you know from the media reports. The age referred to it that he broke into Apple's mainframe. Yeah, I know. I mean, um, that, that sounds that's not interesting sort of terminology we, right. we, 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 we hear so often, right? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, has Apple got some um, some old mainframes that he uh, he used his dial up modem to uh, uh, to hook into? I'm you know I'm not sure. He did it from his suburban home on multiple occasions over a year because he was such a fan of the company, uh, is what his uh, his his lawyer. Um, states and uh, you know apparently uh, Apple had uh, had had picked this up and had called in uh, the FBI. Um, now this mainframe um, <laughs> had a lot of data on it. He uh, downloaded ninety gigabytes of uh, secure files and he accessed customer accounts. Apparently, so um, young sixteen-year-old. Who, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, very, obviously very, uh, very tech savvy, and, uh, and, and getting in there, and um, um, obviously, you know, spent spent a bit of time, uh, you know, trying trying to break in. I, I imagine, but uh, you know, I mean, it's it's impressive. actually quite amazing that that um, that someone could pull it off, you know, alone in this kind of um, environment where Apple's, you know. The world's first trillion-dollar company, and well, maybe a bit bit lower now as the stock stocks kind of petered off a bit. But um, but certainly one of the more sophisticated technology companies in the world with a very strong um, bias towards security and privacy. And for someone to be able to do this as a lone wolf, you know, and maybe not maliciously, but but technically impressive nevertheless. I'd love to know how. I, I doubt we'll ever see the day of. Day, daylight on that one, but um, well, I imagine Apple will have closed up those, yeah. uh, th- you know, whatever whatever the loopholes were, and of course there are loopholes into every yeah. system, right? So I think um, this you know, proves the point. You know, yeah. even as a company as big as Apple, um, and with as much resource putting and investing into this, is still vulnerable. We we um, you know we can try as hard as we like, but you've just got to be, I think, prepared to deal with the consequences that eventually it could happen to you more than kind of putting your head in the sand you've got the best security in the world it won't happen what what happens if it does happen and how can you prepare for a scenario that it is it is broken mm. yeah i mean it's pretty pretty interesting because you know certainly if someone was a bit more professional you would imagine that they would have hidden their tracks uh, a little yeah. bit more but uh seemed as though they were able to track it back to him uh in, you know re- reasonably easily from, uh, from the reports of what, what we read one of uh one of my close friends actually got his start at apple by doing something very similar, you know, probably 20, 20 odd years ago, um, and and you know wanted to to see if he could if he could get in, did manage to do that, you know, made a contact in Apple, and then ended up going and working for them in the security team, and so um, you know the the kid's ambition was to to try and work for the company. Maybe it pans out for him in the end. Maybe not. Yeah, it's interesting because that certainly used used to happen a fair bit, whereas. Um, yeah, now you tend to hear more more stories about uh, you know people being locked up for for these sorts of things, right? Mm. So I hope it's, he doesn't it's get a re- locked up. A reasonably uh, a reasonably fine fine line, I would I yeah. would imagine there in terms of uh, um, yeah how far you should step when when testing these things out. When Kevin Mitnick was in uh, was in Auckland, he demonstrated a. Uh, 
uh, a mechanism that could be used to uh, take advantage, shall we say, of uh, JB Hi-Fi's uh, website in New Zealand. <laughs> And you could modify a little bit of traffic that was getting sent back and basically change the price of goods. And so he demonstrated right right up to the edge of the point of of where yeah. he, he could have, uh, you know, ordered Broken some uh, <laughs> some some goods for himself and, and you know pay virtually nothing nothing for them um, for uh, for yeah no cost and yeah. uh, um, and got in trouble with the law. So yeah, yeah, you need to be aware, aware of these things if anyone's listening and you're and you're thinking of hacking into um, Apple or Centrality or you know anyone else, then uh, um, then you should not you should not cross that uh, that line. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I hope that the kid, um, you know, gets put in a position where he's reprimanded for, for crossing the line, but also, you know, where he's young and he's obviously keen and, and self, you know, self-taught on this stuff. He has the opportunity to turn those skills around and, and do, do good with them. Um, that would be the ideal outcome. And, and yeah, if you are listening and you're, you think you're contemplating hacking centrality, we have a... Um, bug bounty and responsible disclosure process so like get in touch with us if you find anything nice. and we'll uh, do our best to make it right <laughs> well bug bounties are, uh, are certainly uh, certainly a good thing encourage uh, good good habits and it's it's interesting that this uh, you know um, individual uh, wasn't wasn't aware of that and uh, you know wasn't um you know, he could have been pocketing some good cash for well, more uh, than likely. I'd for, say, uh, you know, um, someone that's uh, still at still at school, right? So never mind. Um, and instead, he's having to uh, uh, deal with the uh, long arm of the law. Now, um, I was reading about some technology that uh, Russia have uh, have put up in orbit in in recent years which was kind of fascinating actually um, you know we've heard a little bit recently around um, space junk and the need to sort of clear that up and I think one of the um, uh, one of the uh, satellites we were hearing about recently was you know potentially going to be able to um, you know, do a bit of sort of tidy up after after itself, or tidy up some other uh, you know. Yeah, the old space uh, rubbish man problems. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, it, it turns out that um, yeah, actually, I think what what the situation was is some of the new satellites that are going up are going to have uh, a um, a mechanism that w- that will allow them to sort of you know destroy themselves when appropriate, rather than just sort of you know staying up in orbit for forever. Uh, which makes some sense, but the the Russian uh, take on it seems to be that uh, as as um, you know, I guess that the superpowers Russia, uh, China, and and the US are getting more serious about space, and uh, its its role from a military uh, perspective, they're uh, possibly experimenting with. Uh, a satellite that could go and do a tidy up, but has a potential to maybe do a little bit more than just sort of tidy up the uh, the junk. Yeah, maybe tidy up someone else's satellite without them knowing or without yeah. them wanting it to go happen. and go and mess with it or uh, hack into it or yeah, knock it out of orbit. Or like like on the uh, Transformers movie Dark Side of the Moon, where you know someone comes along and grabs the satellite and starts to steal the communications. Yes, um, yeah, well, um, you know, hope, well, yeah, I'm just trying to think, is, would it be a, would would we prefer it to be uh, an extraterrestrial involved in that or uh, or, an, or another state from our uh, planet? Def- if it was Optimus Prime, I'd be all over it, definitely. Ch- <laughs> childhood dream to meet the guy. <laughs> 
But I think yeah, the space is definitely heating up. We've got we've got the um, American president um, launching the space force, which sounds like a, a B-rate movie. That you know there are like Space Force Seven um, out there now, and so um, no doubt the other the other um, powers, if they weren't already, uh, are starting to take you know more uh, pay more attention to what type of technology might be appropriate if if um if that goes down that track i think the the world signed a treaty um a little while ago um to say that there wouldn't be kind of a military militarization of space but it sounds like that might be falling by the wayside yeah and look you know some some of these treaties that get signed and we've seen things from a cyber security perspective i think you know as well between um uh, certainly between uh, China and and the US, and you know, really, you wonder whether these have any value at all. That uh, I don't think it really stops what's uh, what, what's going on. No. There was a statement from the Russian uh, Ministry of Defence who describes the satellite as a space apparatus inspector. Um, <laughs> but uh, the yeah, the claims that were coming back was that well, this is uh, this is pretty inconsistent with anything that's been uh, been you know seen before for uh, uh, you know in inspection and and so on. So um, yeah, I, I can um, I can well imagine that uh, this satellite might have some some unique, as long as that's some the, unique uses as long as that's the only extraterrestrial probing going on i think it's that's a good thing for us all <laughs> <laughs> how do we end up there um i've lost lost my uh, lost my track of thought um i guess i guess what it you know did it did leave me with is the thought of you know how bad could this get if you know if we end up with a situation where you've got things that are in orbit that are potentially able to take other things out of orbit so um, you know, G- GPS mm. uh, signals. Yep. Um, you know, Sky TV. Yeah. You know that some people could think that was actually a, 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 <laughs> a good thing. A good thing. <laughs> um, sorry, Sky. I'm just kidding. Um, and but but you know there are some things that are up up you know up in space that are you know pretty important from a, a you know a, a, yeah that that perspective so I think um, that'd be the the aim if it was military action right that's the kind of thing you'd want to interfere with and I know that there are um, projects around the world even in our space there's a project called um, Foam which is trying to create an alternate to GPS a decentralized positioning system um, which which would be owned by the crowd rather than a a company or a country or something like that and it would be highly resilient across a distributed architecture like blockchain so um i think as these types of things start to become you know realities for us in terms of um safety and and new attack vectors and things like that alternate systems will spring up Mm. people will innovate and and hopefully we do build some resilience in those kinds of areas because there'd be a shoot ton of things that if gps fails you know, in our daily lives, would would be severely interrupted. Yeah, and look, there there's already a couple of uh, couple of alternatives, and uh, the, the, yeah, there's at least two others. GLONASS, I think, yeah. is the uh, uh, the Russian one. But you know, you can imagine if uh, if if they were doing something, you know, maybe they would figure out a way to um, um, you know. Depends how far ahead they thought on this stuff, but to uh, you know dis- disrupt what data that people can get off those and uh, uh, so on. So yeah. yeah, we could have interesting times ahead if uh, um, if our superpowers decide to have a um, 
an ongoing punch-up if it sort of es- escalates to a, a higher level. So yeah, let's ho- uh, let's hope it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm with you on that one. Um, I think also, um, yeah, for a long time it was all about the the fear and uncertainty was around military warfare, and then it, you know, in the case of America in particular, it was around currency warfare. Now, you know, potentially we should be discussing data warfare. Mm. Yeah, well, we've we've certainly um, you know seen some interesting things going on, shall we say? And you know, when when, when we look at what uh, nations are capable at, you know, versus your your traditional sort of hackers, um, then they they seem to have some uh, some pretty um, hmm, how do you put it? Uh, you know, Im- impressive in a in a in a bad way. Uh, you know, skill sets. Yeah. And you know, when we we drill into um, you know some of the hacks that have happened uh, over the years, that seem very very you know clearly um, you know produced by a, by a nation rather than uh, by a, by a private group. And uh, you know what they're able to do is uh, um, pretty scary. Yeah. Well, yeah. it is the world's most valuable asset right now, right? So you know, if we look at what happened in the past with yeah. You know, Oil, ATMs with cash, and yeah, we need to protect that data as best we can. Mm, mm. No, I think it's a it's a it's a good point, and um, I think there's there's a lo- there's a lot of work to be done. I was having a chat with someone today, actually, and uh, um, you know we were just talking about how vulnerable New Zealand organisations are from a, a cyber security uh, standpoint, and one of the reasons for that is is you know we've got so many sort of smaller to medium. Uh, businesses and what that tends to mean is you know less budget to sort of put into mm. uh, you know protecting these uh, uh, entities and there's always a squeeze for well where, where do you spend your money right so mm. uh, there's there's just uh, there's so many organisations that uh, are just very relaxed and you know I hear statements like oh it doesn't matter if we get hacked it shouldn't you know won't won't be a problem mm. uh, and then when you actually deal with the circumstances where people have got hit in some way, uh, yeah, it can be a real problem. I was quite closely involved um, with the healthcare system in the South Island post the Canterbury earthquakes. And interesting enough, healthcare data is worth 10 times more than credit card data, financial data. Um, and a lot of that data was stored by GP systems. Yes. Which and those be. particular GPs saw that data as their exit pa- package, their, their CRM, and then post the earthquake a lot of that data a lot of individuals health records was uh, lost because those um, business owners wanted to create a little moat around that particular data didn't want to move to the the cloud or or decentralized models and unfortunately for the individual and consumer they were the ones that um, lost out yeah that's not not an ideal position and you know i think i hope that you know as uh, as a country we've learned a lot from yeah, you know, the impact mm. of the earthquakes, but we we probably didn't. You know, I don't think we heard enough of the stories of those uh, businesses that were actually, you know, um, you know, taken out mm. or severely impacted because of a lack of, uh, you know, good business continuity because they were trying to store everything in a in a local server without you know data elsewhere. Uh, at at a time where you know th- there were uh, you know some 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 reasonable cloud systems available, of course things have moved to uh, a lot over yep. the last few years in terms of what what can be done uh, in the cloud. But uh, yeah, there were there was a there was a really big uh, impact. impact we, I worked at um, 
uh, was Genie at the, at the time. It came Spark Digital, and we certainly saw an uptick in the number of customers after that point, both in Christchurch and then and outside. You know, making serious um, decisions around continuity and data backups and those kinds of things. I think it jogged a lot of people to to get on to protecting that and it's the kind of thing that you just have to keep on top of you can't kind of be complacent about it's it's becomes mission critical part of doing business and and um and if you ignore it then you you kind of you lose <laughs> and particularly the the citizens right like if i was a you know a local person living down there um you know first and foremost i, I should own my own health record and have access to it and you know all those things that go with it um but for someone else to not protect it with the care and uh that you would reasonably expect and for me to not have access to to my information you know that that would really suck <laughs> yeah yeah, <that's laughs> yeah. Slip, oh absolutely and i you know i think that's something that gen you know general public and and even those involved in the technology world are only just sort of starting to you know, cotton on to the idea and that that understanding of of how important their information is. Their digital ID. Yeah, and um, I, you know, I think there's there's a huge amount um, you know still to be done for us to uh, you know m- mature in and and how we think after and how we you know look look at that uh, data. But um, look, as a you know as a as a Christchurch boy originally. Um, you know, I spent a bit of time uh, down down in uh, in Canterbury after uh, after the earthquakes, and look, it was it was pretty shocking to mm. see the you know see the impact, and uh, you know, organisations whose data was maybe on a you know on a server or you know Local across multiple drive. servers, and <laughs> and that they couldn't access because yeah. there were buildings that were you know shut off and you they weren't allowed into the into the building or yeah. um you know a r- range of uh, scenarios there that were, uh, were were not were not nice yeah uh, and from i think a, it's a, a good point you know the data data loss was a, was an issue but i mean probably people had there was a lot more bigger issues going on down in Christchurch in an event like that but it's good to kind of reflect i think and and think about how we could do things better next time and all these aspects built you know building safety and all these other sort of things as well yeah and those are certain areas where technology can come into play so that we you know in the future we should be able to you know have a much better view on you know how safe is Mm. a how safe is a building Mm. how safe is a suburb how safe is a city yeah how safe are we as a as a country And, and especially after what we've just seen in italy um, you know that there was just a you know horrific accident with with the bridge collapse there, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of talk about well, could that could that happen to other infrastructure mm. there there in Italy? And you know, I'm not sure that anybody really knows. So yeah, I think uh, this is the potential of IoT. Really, is if you can get enough sensors collecting enough information um, and have the right analytics applied to that. Um, Information you can start to paint these pictures of of cities and get a better feel for how infrastructure is responding to change and and perhaps you know put measures in place that might see areas of stress or potential damage that could could be avoided by um, stopping those types of tragedies happening in the future. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there ha- there's been there's been a, a lot of that, and um, you know, as they're building new roads and so on around New Zealand, there's you know there's a huge amount of you know, monitoring that goes mm. in certainly during those those processes. I'm not sure you know how much ongoing uh, monitoring there is, but 
you know, this is certainly something we would sort of expect to see, uh, you know, legislation come into play that puts higher and higher expectations on our infrastructure. Mm. So, yeah, so we, we know, you know, at all times, you know, where the risks are. And, you know, I guess we look at aircraft that get, uh, you know, treated at a, at a sort of an extreme level from a, uh, from a safety yep. perspective. But we also, you know, have a lot of peace of mind about being able to fly now, right? Because yep. of the, the, the level that goes into monitoring and checking uh, just how safe everything is. And although it can be a little bit inconvenient when, when a <laughs> flight gets cancelled or something else happens, it was really good to know that there are so many things that are uh, are being monitored and yep. so that the the risks are, uh, are pretty minimal. Totally. One last thing I wanted to uh, chat about before we sort of jump in and talk uh, centrality. Uh, Google have had an offering called uh, Google One for a while that's sort of been, I think, in... Uh, uh, in beta and now it's uh, it's quite broadly available. It's it's sort of a refresh of of their cloud storage offerings, and they seem to have um, have sort of played around with their uh, with their pricing a bit, which is is, is kind of uh, kind of interesting. Um, and I guess you know these things we're kind we're kind of used to changes all the time, and you know we know that the cost of of data storage uh, you know keeps coming, keeps down, coming down to down. a to a degree. Maybe some of the the cloud storage offerings don't always seem to reflect that as quite as quick as what we would we'd yep. like as we like to store more and more uh, data. And of course, you know, Google are the folks that uh, you know give away a lot of free cloud storage for for photos. So a lot of people put their uh, their photos in the cloud with um, free with Go- yeah 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 well <laughs> um, with with Google. And there's some limitations of those. And and yes, they obviously. Uh, We'll be taking advantage of to to, <laughs> to whatever level uh, the fact that they've they've got our uh, our data, our photos, mm. and and other things to be able to analyze and uh, and play with. And um, yeah. you know, it's always a little bit hard to know what what are, what are the downsides of uh, of those things. Um, but yeah, they've um, they've bumped these new plans um, online in the in the US. Uh, They've got uh, you can store two hundred uh, gigs worth of data with them for three US dollars, which is a new plan. What used to be their one terabyte plan for ten US dollars a month is now a two terabyte uh, plan. So uh, just a bit more sort of bang for buck for your personal data. Yeah, like I think that the evolution of these, um, let's say, kind of first generation internet services is has been interesting and and definitely kind of. Um, a lot of benefit in the scale that some of these organizations can bring to to making pricing available for consumers personally i mean i i think google probably started from a good place but um but as an organization maybe then they're uh they kind of lost their way a little bit and um and and i don't think they're being like you said before as transparent about the way that they are really monetizing this information. You might, we might be paying these $2, but who knows what's off the back of that, um, which is really why we got into this um, technology space that, that we're in now is we, we want to try and be able to provide these seamless, useful technology services that are economic for consumers, um, but without the corporation behind it with its motives. And um, and I think it's, it's possible. You know, we've looked at some... Um, uh, models where we can probably do, um, you know, thirty percent cheaper than you know typical storage costs for for certain types of data um, compared with cloud compri- providers in a decentralized setting, which is controlled by the users. 
Um, and I think if we if we keep making the types of improvements in the way that this technology works in the future, we'll be able to have a service like this, which we own and we control, and the community um, has participation and input in, in how that thing evolves. That would be, in my mind, the ideal solution. You kind of give the benefits, give the price price points that people love um but don't do the other stuff behind the scenes yeah that, i mean that certainly sounds uh you know sound sounds pretty uh, pretty enticing it's, it's kind of interesting to uh, uh to drill into it because there's a level to which if if google can subsidize something mm. then you know a lot of the time we just think oh that, that's good without thinking other any other yeah. you know negative uh, you know implications and and whether it's google or uh you know who whoever it is behind the scenes that that's offering a particular you know service yeah. at a at a low price or a you know no cost directly doesn't uh you know you could put anybody in there but yep. i you know i guess google google um have been going through some interesting times recently and uh their potential sort of moves back into the Chinese market is mm. is one which is you know very very curious because they exited that for uh, um, moral reasons for, for more yeah for very much from <laughs> sort of moral reasons and and then there's been a lot of talk recently that uh, that they might just throw all that to the wind and, yeah. and go back into uh, into the Chinese uh, market so it's um, this yeah, is the fundamental a, problem with corporations right is that no matter what promise they make you today, there's no guarantee that that will be a promise in the future. Um, and, you know, we... But we the might, same goes for individuals. It totally does. But, <laughs> and I think, I think um, that this is, the, um, this is the interesting paradigm that we're in now is that can you create a system which isn't controlled by a corporation that gives you the benefits of that system? You know, can we create a Facebook that right. keeps its promise that's democratized that's so democratized it's, it's, it's you know Z- zuck was on bbc in the early early days saying facebook will never sell your data <laughs> that's the whole business model so um you know the the idea of the technology and the service that we get out of that's awesome but um to be able to rely on a corporation to keep the best, best interests of its customers at heart probably not you know it's been a while since i've heard google say don't be evil <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the thing is like people ask you know why is this decentralized thing or why are these blockchain things important and and it really comes down to that it's not necessarily about the technology um it's about what the technology enables it enables you to create a system that isn't owned by a company and a system where if you don't like the way it's going you can fork it <laughs> so you know if the if the next generation of facebook was built um, it would be a totally different scenario. If you look at Facebook, the application, the technology that you kind of interface with, it's relatively trivial to replicate that. You know, we're not talking easy because they're a you know, smart company that's done a lot of cool things, but relatively trivial compared to the value of Facebook. You know, millions to tens of millions of dollars to, to rebuild the application itself. To rebuild the data underneath that, the network effect that you and I and Jerome and everyone else in the world has created with our own information is a billion dollar, you know, multi-billion dollar problem. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the, valuable, uh, that's the valuable thing that they, they have. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to do is take the data away from the application and say that belongs to you and that belongs to the community. And then the application sits on top of that and and uses that data in a way that we choose. And if we don't like the way that application 
is treating us, we can simply shift our data to another application. And so in a scenario where Facebook abused people's trust um, with the Cambridge Analytica scenario, there's no option. There's no viable way to shift my data away from Facebook to somewhere else. Um, If we create a world where data and application are loosely coupled instead of strongly coupled, um, I think we get a fairer outcome because developers will have to respect the data more than they do today. Right. So, yeah, so in that, in that sort of situation, mm, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting trying to, trying to uh, yeah, conceive a world in which, um, yeah, Facebook didn't have the dominance that they have, yeah. uh, they have today and exactly how that might come about. Well, maybe um, you, can, you can give us a bit of a rundown on centrality and, uh, you know, how you how you got started? Yep. Why uh, why people might uh, you know trust trust what your corporation is doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, well you know how how that's going because you obviously had you know bits and pieces of media coverage that people will have uh, you know will have come across from yep. you know different perspectives. And look, anything that's uh, that's happening in the in the blockchain world draws a sort of high valuation tends mm-hmm. to get a bit of uh, a bit of attention and a bit yep. of interest so you've had some of that sort of uh, media coverage but sort of you know run us through the uh, the background story and um, you know where you're at now yeah I mean I've always been um, a believer that technology sh- should be able to help us solve some of the fundamental problems that we have in the planet um, and and the internet actually you know I got my first computer when I was um, very young my per- parents weren't um, that well off and, and dad got a second job and um, and we managed to kind of scrounge enough money to buy an Amiga 500 and and that was me you know I kind of fell in love with with technology at that point and um, always felt like um, we had the opportunity to to use something like the internet to kind of democratize um, a lot of things that were kind of not available to the world and to a certain extent it, that opportunity has been kind of fulfilled but I think recent, more recently, we're seeing the emergence of these technology oligarchs, you know, that control a lot of the value of the internet um, and the ecosystems that surround them, the venture capital ecosystems and and those kinds of things, the influence they have in policy making decisions and um, and governments and stuff like that. Uh, it's getting to the point where, you know, your average kind of innovator isn't able to take advantage of that technology in the same way that they used to. And what we wanted to do was try and solve that problem. How can we create a new type of internet experience where um, everybody shares in the value that they create, where data is owned by the individuals, where application developers have a say in the way that the app store works um, and how the fees work and how they're treated, um, and where we can try to put, you know, take the power back to the people and create more equality through technology, and that's that's kind of the genesis of what centrality was about. Um, blockchain was kind of a, a, a relatively unknown thing at the time when we got into it. Um, I think Bitcoin had been around for a while, and Ethereum was only you know a year or so old at that point, um, but it wasn't mainstream at all. And um, we saw the potential that. If you could create a decentralized system, you know, something that's owned by the community, run by the community, um, you could remove some of those moral hazards that I guess that exist in a corporation. So our uh, platform is creating this next type of app store where developers can build decentralized applications. Um, And 
our job is to kind of boost this into the market and push it live. But once it's there, we're out of control. It's controlled by the community. And so you don't have to believe me. You just have to believe the code. And the code's open source. And so anyone who's developing or using that platform can see what the promises are being made by the people in that community. And they can judge for themselves whether that's an appropriate thing for them. Um, If I decide, you know, down the track once this thing's kind of fully operating that I I don't like it, well, that's just tough (laughs) because I don't get a say, you know. um, I'm a contributor to the community just like everybody else. And I think that should be the way that platforms evolve. And that's what centrality is about. In order to do that, you can't just make it blockchain. You know, like that's just not good enough. And a lot of people out there are like, oh, it's blockchain, you know, it's cool. Actually, it has to be a better experience for the user than what they get today. It has to give them better economic outcomes than what they get today. And it has to treat them with more respect than they get today. You have to kind of knock over all of those three things to actually get traction in the real world. So we're very focused on building friendly applications that people can use every day without even knowing that blockchain exists. And that's the key. The minute we stop talking about blockchain, we've done our job. Um, Because no one goes to the app store today and says, geez, I wonder if this is running on AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or whatever. They just download the app and they use it because they like it. So our, our kind of mission is to make decentralized technology uh, achieve those kinds of outcomes for consumers right yep and you know look it's um you know i guess it's it's reasonably easy to uh um you know to get those concepts but yeah. um looking back in terms of how you guys sort of got started and mm. you know what what you know run it run us through sort of um some of the realities there was a you know a big valuation yep. that's sort of been been talked about and uh um, you know, initial coin offerings and, yep. and, and bits and pieces. Sort of, you know, what what, uh, what did that all look like? Yeah, well, we started the good old hard way with our own money um, and the founders put a decent chunk of money into the company to get it off the ground and build some technology to prove that our ideas actually worked. Um, it's not the typical process for, a blo- process for a blockchain company, but that's the approach we took. Um, we then had investment from um, the New Zealand um, investment community, um, somewhere around $4 million in our kind of early early seed rounds to um, take that technology and then scale it up a little bit, um, do some more um, cool stuff. Um, and at the end of that journey, once we figured out what the plan was and we're pretty certain that we could scale it, um, we went and did this, what you'd call an ICO, what we call a TGE, um, which is a thing we actually T- invented. TGE? Yeah, token generating event. Okay. Um, and the key difference is that this was a, um, a process that was managed alongside regulated offerings. Um, so we didn't go out and just do a put a contract on Ethereum and get any old person to come and put money into it. Um, we built a tech stack um, akin to what an investment bank would, would build to screen investors judge whether they were capable of investing in the in the in the token whether they had the financial means to support a high risk investment like that to go through the actual process of of acquiring that token and issuing that token in a decentralized way um and so we we did we built this technology and then we launched the sale we raised around 100 million us dollars in ethereum in about six minutes 
um, and um, and we've taken that money and started to kind of scale up the partnerships that we have, the technology that we have, the applications that are connected to our ecosystem. And we've got really kind of exciting things happening across all of those sectors. Um, New application launching very shortly called Silo, which is a decentralized WeChat. So it's voice, video, um, messaging, and an application marketplace all built into one um, framework. And so it'll feel just like using WhatsApp or Line or or uh, Facebook Messenger, and I actually think it, it feels a little bit better than that, a little bit slicker than that, but underlying is fully decentralized. There isn't a central server. The whole thing's encrypted peer-to-peer. Uh, the um, infrastructure that supports it's been run by, by token holders rather than a corporation. So it's a cool way to demonstrate how we can build these really savvy consumer applications um, that are using this underlying technology. Oh, that one sounds really interesting. So, what what will be the um, the way in which that will be funded, basically? Yeah. So we um, we have um, put money into it ourselves. You know, as a kind of result of that ICO, um, and um, and then when it goes to market, it's got its own tokenized economy. So if you're um, participating in providing infrastructure, you know, which would people would call mining, mm. most typically. Um, mm. uh, then you're rewarded with the silo tokens for doing that. If you're helping acquire users, then you're rewarded with the silo token for doing that. Um, so there's a whole bunch of mechanics built into the application itself that help create community. So everyone gets value respective to the value that they contribute. If you're developing the silo software as a developer, you can get rewarded for doing that. So we create kind of a a moat of community rather than these kind of traditional moats that exist in in the, um, the existing tech world. Yeah, and that, that funds the, the growth of the ecosystem because as more people use the tokens, they become more valuable and that kind of contributes to the, to the, to the ecosystem itself. And how will, um, how will it work from a user perspective? Mm. Are they going to have to you know, contribute to use it or will there be sort of an, an ad-supported... Moral, yeah. how does how does that piece come? Because when you know when you're dealing with these things, you've got to pay for it. There's you know, always a got cost. To, you've got to there's a, yeah, basically. So yeah, and I think I think that, um, there's two things when you ask that. Like one is what's an appropriate cost? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be a profit motivated um, costing. Because we're not trying to make profit; we're trying to make a sustainable community. Um, but in order for people to want to provide infrastructure, storage, computing power, all those kinds of things, security to the network, they're going to want to get rewarded. So there has to be some value in this for them. Um, we have designed it so that um, initially the costs are associated with a, gr- a certain group of activities that use computing resource. So that might be backing up your contacts, for example, or it might be... Um, creating an encrypted group for group messaging or it might be storing some content that you want to keep for later so relatively similar to say the google model that you discussed so it could be expanded to to, yeah but yeah i think we're i think we're still still still, uh still going excuse us uh Listeners, for a, a slight uh, bump as our uh, studio, uh, our portable studio, uh, <laughs> smashes into a thousand pieces. Uh, 
Oh, no. We're safe. I think we're uh, we're, we're still in action. Um, so yeah, the the um, the app the the framework provides uh, or the application provides a framework which other developers can build on top of. So I might be interested in I don't know connecting with my customers as a business, um, and I want those customers to interact with me via this via this messaging platform. I might reward them for doing that, and so I'm I might be as a business paying you some silo tokens to to do something that I like. And then you as a consumer can use those silo thing, tokens to do the things that you like. So you kind of create this um, circular effect where people who want something from the community give them silos and people who want to use the application take those and use those in the application. So it should work out for everybody. Yeah, that's, that sounds interesting. So uh, when can we get our hands on this? Yeah, well, we're going into um, our closed alpha in uh, closed alpha next week um, and then probably within two to three weeks we'll be in open beta so um, be in the app stores we'll be letting people know follow us on our social channels and you'll get the announcements um, or go and check out silo um, on their website and and you can sign up there for information and how and do you updates. spell how do you spell it? what's the s y l o so silo protocol dot io dot io Cool, cool. That sounds interesting. And um, yeah, and we've got twenty three of those types of cool things already kind of built within our ecosystem. A whole bunch more coming along after them. Yep. And look, it's pretty hard. Uh, you know, all of these are. I guess we're talking about lots of little startups. Yeah. And as we know in the startup world, sort of most of these things fail and don't end up yep. sort of you know coming to anything. So, um, you know, how's that for you guys? There's different you know bits and pieces going on. But people will sort of look in and, and judge you based on, you know, whether you've got any successes or, or big hits, right? In New Zealand in 2012, 43,000 companies failed. And the math basically is four out of five will fail. And, you know, one of the, one of the things I love most about Centrality is it's all about helping the, the small guys succeed and increase their chances of success. So if you're able to share users, share merchants shared data in a way that's consumer-centric, i.e. for the benefit of them across an ecosystem, then it's going to provide New Zealand businesses with a greater chance of success and sustainability. Yeah, and I think what we tried to do was say, in this new paradigm, um, it's not a zero-sum game. We don't want to build a, a small number of unicorns. We want to have a herd of zebras that are interacting with each other and it's successful in their own right and sustainable in their own right. Ex- explain that for those yeah, that are not familiar so, with the, the startup terms. Yeah, so a unicorn's <laughs> a, a company that gets to a billion, a billion dollar market valuation, right? So, um, and, and generally people in the startup game are, are saying, well, you know, I want to smash everybody else and get to this point. That's not necessarily good for the planet and it's not necessarily good for innovation. It's not necessarily good for individuals like us. Um, you know, why can't we have, you know, a thousand companies that are um, worth $10 million and they're sustainable, you know, and, and, f- and feeding the ecosystem that surrounds that. One of the, the things we designed into the platform was the ability for one application to help another application to be successful um, and do that in a really interesting way. 
And so we believe, and we're showing this now in our ecosystem, that it's this snowball effect. You know, once there's one application that finds a customer, who else could could interact with that customer? Once we get a data point, who else could use that data point? Once we get a merchant on board to offer a service, who else could use that service that's not necessarily directly competing with me? So you create much more efficiency in the way that you grow and scale. And hopefully that means, and we're kind of showing this already with the, the ecosystem itself, that we get this network effect that helps everybody grow and gives them a better chance of success. So that's that's been designed into the platform mechanics from the outset. And I think that's important. I mean, whilst we're very passionate about the technology itself, it's the values alignment that really resonate with what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. And as an example, in in North America, they you know they value freedom. They value freedom of speech, you know, freedom to bear arms. And in the case of Oracle, was freedom to you know write the rules of the America's Cup. Yeah, arguably for for their benefit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in New Zealand, you know what we value? We we value fairness. You know, we were the first to give everybody the vote when we won the America's Cup. Um, we wanted to write the rules in a way that you know enabled equality across those participants. And I think it's those values that blockchain enable but with some really beautiful technology. I think it's important to know that we're we are early days in this space and and we are inventing a lot of stuff that doesn't exist. You know, we're not kind of going to GitHub and having to, you know, copy some code and change a few lines. We're actually having to think about hard tech problems, hard math problems, you know, great research team, and it's not something that I can say we've solved every problem in. Um, it will take some time to, to get to get this done. We're three years into um, application capable blockchains, you know, compared with forty plus years of internet, um, but but it's moving very fast, um, and and also and you know, think if um, if if the quality of developers and the quality of businesses that are building in our ecosystem is any indication of future success, we're on a strong track there. And it's not just startups, you know, you've got to work with existing industry and hopefully try and bring them into this world as well. You know, if you're a blockchain purist, then you kind of say, well, you know, screw the rest of the world, you know, we're going to go out here and make this new thing. Well, I'm sorry, that's just not reality. Um, So we have great partnerships with established companies all around the world, and we're helping them understand the benefits of giving more control to their consumers over their own data, giving them fair economic rewards for participating in the ecosystems that those consumers create. You know, big, big brands, multinational companies, Fortune 500 companies are working with us on solving these problems too. And that's part of our mission. It's not blockchain for blockchain's sake. It's not about pure, purist or maximalist views. It's about practical views and moving the needle towards equality. That's actually a really good point. For a long time, a lot of businesses have um, put a reasonable amount of effort into acquiring uh, data uh, in the hope of making uh, better data-driven uh, decisions. And the reality is it's come with a whole lot of cost, compliance, and, and, and risk. And arguably, the majority of companies, I mean, there's exceptions, um, haven't got the return on that, that investment. And so the value is actually more so in the metadata. And one of the things that blockchain provides is privacy and transparency, um, typically at opposite ends of, of the spectrum. And so we're seeing a lot of corporates want to get the value out of that, that metadata but not with the risk and compliance of having the personally identifiable information. And that's not something I um, anticipated early on in this uh, uh, journey. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting just how some of these things actually, uh, you know, come through and, you know, what are their expectations on, on, uh, 
uh, you know, that we have on on what might be achieved through blockchain actually yeah. uh, uh, actually come through. And you know, obviously for these things to work, yep, it's you know, it's good that um, you know the the uh, um, you know, things are decentralized, and um, you know the way that. Um, uh, you know, contributors can can uh, you know benefit from the, from their involvement in the process, uh, but just you know how it works out from a, a financial perspective, I suppose is, is kind of kind of interesting because I guess uh, you know it's fair to say there's been some um, interesting movements when we look at sort of cryptocurrencies mm. and uh, and Bitcoin and it's yep. upward and downward sort of direction and uh, yep. um, yeah you can uh, you can. Uh, imagine that there will be uh, there'll be a fair few players who um, you know who don't do very well out of this. The, yeah, I the, think the, you're, stuff. You're, you're right that there's. I mean, if you're if you're talking about purely cryptocurrencies, um, you know, you could say that there are two two schools of thought there. If you're like a like a, a Bitcoin maximalist, let's say that that um, Bitcoin is the the new money um, and it replaces the the dollar, let's say the US dollar as as a as a global reference point for for currencies. Probably the chance of that happening is relatively low, let's say. Um, what will money look like in the future? That's a different question. You know, we literally are increasingly living in this digital age. You know, more and more things, AI, IoT, big data, all this stuff is driving digital. But our whole financial system is literally printed money Mm. (laughs) everything is backed off of like physically you know 300 year old technology um what blockchains could offer us or this kind of decentralized technology is the ability to create programmable money and so would bitcoin be the winner i don't know but will a digital currency be the winner i'm almost certain because there's no way we can go into the future digital economy without digital money it just doesn't make sense and you've got to imagine that in the future most transactions won't be between me and you going into our bank accounts and logging in and transferring some money across even that's a horrendous process if you look underneath and and those hackers obviously did to exploit that atm hack but um but 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 if you imagine the future where robots are ordering food for you or you know virtual assistants are doing the the economic tasks or iot devices are 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 exchanging money with each other for processes that's not a world that can run on the current financial system something has to change and i believe that this type of technology is the fundamental part of that change well let, let's hope we get all this stuff right and uh, and that it pans out well so um for centrality what's uh, what's next you've got this uh, launch coming up yep um how does your app store work by the way because you were sort of you know talk you've, you've alluded to that but uh, yeah um yeah not not quite sure on the the detail so there's it. a reason why silo's the the first app because um it is essentially the app store framework so we believe that um especially for consumer applications that you've got to have an anchor app that's very frequently used and engaged with and they're persistently in front of and if you look at the successful emerging models that is all around messaging applications right so everything else could sort of fit everything on top of that bounces out of silo okay yeah. okay so that'll that that'll be an app that you can get ios android and yeah. and, and and whatnot through the usual mechanisms yeah. and then you'll build things on top of that yeah and we will give versions um that don't require um the app the traditional app stores in order to to be successful because i think if we start to get some good success in this space they 
they might push back. So we want to be able to offer options outside of that that system as well. So web web technologies have come a long way, and um, we believe that there there'll be viable alternatives that don't rely on the app store. Starting to see some major um, properties um, going down this path with you know um, Fortnite recently not going to the Android app store. Yes, yeah, uh, very, just very interesting. Strategy. Was yeah. it fifty million US that yeah. uh, Google? Uh, won't see because of that decision. Exactly, and I, I think that's the future. Actually, yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Now, um, we're we're now you're here um, in uh, in Auckland, Emily Emily Place is yep. your HQ. Um, how many people have you got here? What 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 are they all doing? It seemed quite uh, quite <laughs> busy out there when I came in. Yeah, so we um, we actually started next door in the juicy snooze. Um, Tim Alp was. Um, kind enough to give us some space in there in our early days we had no money and and we're just starting out and uh and we would outgrow that 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 space pretty quickly and and so happens that they were renovating this this building um and james um kind of got us in here and showed us what his vision for for the place was and we've been slowly kind of creeping up up the buildings as we go so we have now uh level five six seven eight and eleven coming um, so in total in centrality around the world we have now close to 100 employees mostly engineers um, that are working on building the platform and applications and then we have uh, in our ecosystem somewhere close to 300 people that are working on the uh, different ventures that we support across cross centrality so you know likes of silo or single source our identity platform or the guys out there from from neighborhood our real estate platform so there's there's a whole bunch of people that are kind of growing with us and and we're taking over up here at crypto hill wow and so what's the what's the biggest one of those in terms of people that are actually you know uh build building something new yeah i'd say right now it'll be a tie probably between single source and silo um, single source is about providing um, self-sovereign identity. So it's a way for people to have a digital identity that isn't owned by a corporation. Um, just recently got um, uh, confirmed as a New Zealand identity confirmation provider by DIA. Got great partnerships happening with banks and insurance companies and, and IoT companies and hardware manufacturers and all sorts of stuff around the world trying to take flip the game so that you can be in control of your your single sign-on. That's nice. That's yeah. nice. You'd be able to throw away your passport soon, you think? Yeah, well, we're actually act, uh, doing a proof of concept at the moment with DIA, which um, would integrate with the passport database. So we hope hope so. Cool, cool. Well, anything we can do to make that uh, <laughs> getting, getting through airports uh, quicker and faster and, yeah. um, you know, knowing that... Uh, you've got the right person crossing the border and so on would be uh, be kind of cool. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, thank you both for your time. It's been uh, it's been really interesting. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Thanks for having us on the, on the show and, um, you know, the little technical problems, but I think it was a good chat. <laughs> yeah. So um, where do people sort of track you down to uh, to keep keep up with the player? Are you guys on, on Twitter? Or, yeah. Or is there a, a company account? What's, what's, what's the best way for, uh, you know, if we've got people that want to get in touch and maybe find out a little bit more? Um, you know, may, maybe they're developers, yep. or they've got some sort of you know uh, business ideas. Who uh, who should they connect with, and, and how? Yeah, go to um, centrality.ai on on the web, um, and that's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-I-T-Y, um, <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of contacts on there. Or um, follow me on Twitter um, at Aaron MCDNZ. Uh, Jerome, you can give your handle. Jay Forey. 
F-A-U-R-Y. Um, and, uh, and, and happy for anyone to hit us up if you're a developer that's interested in this space, if you're, if you're a business with an idea that, that needs decentralizing, um, if you just want to have a chat about you know, what the future could look like. You know, we've got lots of people across our channels to, to help answer those questions. Cool. All right. Well, uh, well best of luck. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you again uh, next week. All right. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.